Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today, I'll be talking with Erica Davis, Managing Director and Global Co-Head of Cyber for Guy Carpenter. Prior to this, Erica led Guy Carpenter's North America Cyber Center of Excellence. She has years of cyber, professional, and multi-line underwriting expertise. Erica is a key contributor to the public sector dialogue around cyber insurance and has provided testimony to the House Small Business Committee as an expert witness in cybersecurity insurance. As a prominent leader, in understanding cyber risk at an enterprise level, Erica has presented at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and has contributed to several publications, events, articles, and interviews in the industry. Erica, welcome. Thanks for making time to share your thoughts and perspectives with the listeners. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by Talking about you, your professional journey, your current role at Guy Carpenter. Sure. Um, so thanks. Um, thanks again for having me today. And uh, yeah, you know, I really got started in the insurance industry by focusing on technology risk. And so I spent the first 10 years of my career at CHOP underwriting um, all lines of business. So general liability, workers' compensation, auto, intellectual property, years and emissions. Um, but with a focus on information and technology risk. So always thinking about what's coming next in terms of emerging exposures. Uh, before I moved over to Zurich, still in an underwriting capacity, um, still with technology top of mind, um, but to build their book of business, um, ultimately taking greater responsibility for general industry and financial institutions um, and, and some other risk outside of that. Um, but what I learned in staying closely connected to the technology risk was that there was an opportunity for um, cyber products, um, cyber insurance risk transfer solutions to um, find a home within the industry as interconnectivity and reliance on technology grew. And so I moved over to that side of the business with a specialization in cyber and professional liability in 2012. Um, at that point, the industry was um, just beginning to grow its expertise and truly its acknowledgement of how far-reaching and uh, massive cyber risk was going to become. And so, um, you know, Zurich wasn't alone in building um, specialized products and expertise in that space. Um, and I, I worked there until um, about four years ago about 2018, um, still on the underwriting side and, and focusing on cyber risk transfer products. Um, ultimately, what I learned was that 
the insurance space was beginning to craft solutions for the business community um, who were also becoming increasingly aware of how cyber risk could manifest you know, within their organization and also outside of their four walls, so looking at various supply chain risks when it comes to cyber. And um, the industry at that point had grown to a size of about $4 billion in gross rate and premium, still very small compared to some of the more traditional lines of business out there. Um, but there was a lot of work to be done on the reinsurance side, um, which was the insurance that sits behind insurance companies, um, kind of simply put. And there needed to be more expertise in that space in order to build capacity to grow and support um, the insurance side of the house. And so I made the move over to reinsurance and reinsurance broking about four years ago. And I've been with Guy Carpenter in, a, in a increasing roles um, since that time. Good to know. Thanks for that intro. So, uh, you know, I had reached out to a couple of my CISO connections. I told them that I was going to be talking to you and if they have any questions of interest. So one of them sent this to me. He said, why should we get cyber insurance now? It seems that in the last 12 to 18 months, the industry has moved away from insuring verticals, companies, or has made the cost of coverage so high that it raises the question of why not just self-insure? How would you react to that statement or question? Yeah, so just to sort of set the stage for you know the buying community within cyber, um, about 40% of all organizations um, across the US purchase a cyber insurance product. And that number is more heavily skewed towards mid-sized and large companies, uh, more so than small, micro, mini-sized organizations. Um, oftentimes that's because there's been a more sophisticated risk assessment process in place um, for you know, cyber risk on those larger sized entities. Um, and in the US, there's actually more buyers of cyber insurance than there are outside of the US, so a greater percentage of businesses buy. Um, and the reason for that is largely driven by a regulatory environment. So businesses in the US are geared to protect um, private and confidential information in a way that's still developing outside of the US. Um, certainly um, regions such as you know, Europe, UK um, have strong regulatory um, positions now that have developed um, and the buying um, habits of the business community have accelerated as a result of that. Um, but even in the US, companies that have a more regulated or I should say a more regulatory sort of focused mindset, somebody like healthcare financial institutions were early adopters of the product. Um, and your friend or your contact is correct that in the last 12 to 18 months, the price of cyber products has increased significantly. Um, what, I, what I would suggest is that's really a reflection of the losses that have been paid out by the industry. So some pricing correction that's occurred because of that, um, but also an escalating risk environment where we've seen things like you know, geopolitical tensions increase. We've seen ransomware threats increase. We see um, greater risk because of interconnectivity. And so um, you don't see pricing change um, without cause. Um, cyber products are still fairly inexpensive when you look at the cost of other you know, mandatory purchases um, within, um, I'll call it the 
risk management package. Um, but yes, um, you know, the businesses do need to um, take stock of what's at risk, what sort of digital assets they have. Um, the discussion around whether to purchase a product is a very healthy risk management discussion. There will be um, potential businesses that instead elect to invest in their own information security, um, or I should say like architecture. Um, and if that makes sense for them, then you know that's certainly a choice they can make. It's not a mandatory purchase at this time. It's still discretionary in nature. Um, and sorry for the long-winded answer, but I would just I would just add too that um, you know cyber products are a little bit different than the traditional products that are offered by insurance companies, and in that cyber products offer you pre-breach um, services, so things like discounted rates from forensics, public relation firms, um, you know legal uh, sort of breach coaches, all of which you know you can establish relationships with and access at a discounted rate. And then incident response services too, so that if and when the bad event does occur, um, your uh, resiliency and responsiveness is increased by having a product in place. So, um, you know, prices have gone up and yes, that's true, but I still think it's a very valuable product for businesses to consider. Good to know, good to know. In fact, um, I was um, reviewing a KPMG study uh, where they surveyed senior information security professionals. And 74% uh, of the respondents said they had no cyber insurance. And they mentioned uh, mistrust of insurers honoring policies appeared to be one challenge. And they also mentioned that the market not being very mature. Uh, and I believe you've addressed that. Um, but then I'm just curious to know, um, you, as somebody who carries personal insurance of different types, one of the things that I worry about is when the time comes, when I submit a claim, will the claim be honored? Will I have a good experience? Um, what do you have to say um, from the standpoint of a cyber risk insurer? Um, you know, I understand those those challenges. Um, certainly I've heard them firsthand, especially in my underwriting days. I think when we consider insurance um, as buyers of products, we think about something like tangible assets. What if my home burns down? How much damage is there? You can see a fire. You can smell a fire. Um, cyber risk is different. Um, assessing its value is a challenge. The quantification of what happens if a cyber event occurs is difficult to put a number on for many organizations. And it gets even more complex when we think about measuring cyber risk outside of you know, your own sort of entity's four walls and you look at supply chain and you look at potential non-physical impacts that could affect you. Um, COVID is one example of where we saw that brought to life. Right. Um, we saw supply chains severely disrupted. We saw transformation of, of, of data exchanges. Um, so there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Uh, but when we protect intangible assets and we think about nonlinear exposures um, like cyber risk, that's difficult. And having a product that appropriately addresses those issues is also challenging for the buying community to understand. 
quite frankly, as an industry, I don't think we've done a really great job at defining it and helping businesses to, to, to fully grasp what a cyber product offers. Um, but we are getting better at it. We're definitely seeing adoption of the product increase. Um, but um, I, I do, we definitely have work to do as an industry to help businesses through those, those complexities. True, very true. Many of the listeners are possibly thinking about cyber insurance, but they're not sure from where to start. What should be the next steps? What are some resources that they might find valuable? Any suggestions for them? Any recommendations? I think the best advice that I can give to, to businesses who are evaluating whether a cyber insurance product is the next step for them is, is really to work with a specialist broker who understands the risk. I think right now um, there aren't, there isn't a level of consistency across cyber products. Um, again, that's easy for the, the, the business community to understand. Um, you need to work with a broker who can explain the differences in those pre and post breach services to you, which are a huge part of the value of a cyber insurance product. You need somebody who fully comprehends the nuance of the various policy languages that are out there um, and can make sure that they tailor a product and design a product that, um, that fully suits the needs of the, of the buyer. Um, some of those more specialized brokers can also provide the quantification services um, to help inform your decision of whether to buy a product or whether to invest in your own security or to self-insure is the right answer for you. Okay, uh, good to know. And when, when someone is evaluating a, a cyber insurance policy, what are some elements that one should be looking out for? Uh, what are some, what, uh, maybe if I would rephrase the question, what are some key elements of a good cyber insurance policy, if there is anything like, like that? Um, so most of the cyber insurance products that are available, actually, let me reframe this a little bit. Um, there are cyber coverages that can be offered through traditional lines of business. You might purchase a property policy and have some level of coverage available to you through something like business interruption. So something like downtime um, originating from a cyber-related event. You might have something offered through general liability or professional liability that allows um, liability from a cyber-related event. When you purchase a cyber-dedicated product, it is a hybrid between first-party and third-party. And so what I mean by that is, the liability aspects, so something like network and security, uh, privacy liability, some elements of media liability, uh, but it also includes first-party coverages. So things like your costs out of pocket for um, forensics um, response, something like um, you know legal services, something like public relations, and then most importantly, business interruption, independent business interruption. Um, some of the coverages that have gotten quite a lot of um, attention lately have been around um, the forensics, the business interruption and extortion payments. Um, that's largely because of the proliferation of ransomware over the last 36 months or so. Um, so, you know, um, 
each of those coverages is, is, is valuable, it really depends on what segment of the business you operate in. So if you're somebody like, you know, a healthcare provider, you definitely don't want to provide, you don't, you don't want to have a cyber product that only has, for example, like first party coverages. You want to make sure that you have liability aspects. If you're somebody who's feeling more exposed to ransomware, it's really important to look at those forensics, business interruption and extortion payment coverages offered under the first party. Um, so I would say it's, it's really um, important to understand, you know, what coverages are most applicable given your class of business. Now, is it fair to assume that an organization that has very robust and mature cyber governance processes is likely to get a better deal? So, um, yeah, I'll respond to that a few, few different ways. So um, when we think about traditional underwriting of cyber risk, um, certainly the goal there is to differentiate customers based on their level of cybersecurity maturity. Um, your goal as an underwriter is to flush out, you know, the good risk from the not so good risk and differentiate and either and either decline the not so good risk because it's certainly possible right now the businesses aren't able to secure cyber insurance because they just don't have risk controls that are up to, up to a level of expectation. Um, but even within that spectrum of, of good and not so good, being able to differentiate pricing and terms on the policy is a reflection of those, those, those protocols in place. Um, it is important to mention that, that cyber underwriting extends beyond pure evaluation of the level of, of security controls. And it includes things like you know, culture of resiliency and, 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 and stakeholder connectivity? And is your HR team talking with your legal team and talking with your product dev team um, in, in, um, in, in practicing and promoting good cyber standards? Um, and things like employee training, for example, can come into play. And so um, part of this is, is the security itself of an organization, but part of this is around the culture that's created um, and then also, like, I know I've talked about supply chain a couple times, but how are you looking outside of your own organization and assessing risk across, you know, upstream, downstream in your entire supply chain? Very interesting. Like, Very interesting. In fact, when you mentioned uh, culture resiliency, um, you know, it, uh, it resonates with me very well because I recently published a book uh, where I talk about the importance of creating and sustaining a high performance information security culture. And I provide organizations with scorecards to make an assessment along three dimensions, a commitment, preparedness, and discipline. So I'll be curious to know that um, based on your experience of assessing culture resiliency, um, what are the things that you'll, you'll look for as an insurance company? So, um, so, you know, a few different things there, right? So, you know, I'll kind of, you know, go back to, to the NIST guidelines, right? And you think mm -hmm. about things like identifying your assets okay. and, you know, detecting intrusion, but it's also more around like the disaster recovery, right? It's how are you bringing your employees into the discussion? How are you um, identifying your key providers, suppliers, customers? Um, how are you protecting and 
you know, um, and, and restoring, right, your sort of data assets if something does happen. Um, so I think, you know, this is an ongoing exercise happening within organizations. Um, certainly the underwriting is also evolving as a result of that. Um, I talked a little bit about you know, a culture and this sort of like practice of resiliency that's really easier to understand as an underwriter when you have touch points with your customer. Um, the reality is when we get into that small business space, particularly the micro minis, the expectations and the needs are going to shift when it comes to securing insurance. You're not going to be able to meet with every business that only has like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten employees out there. Um, that's where you see a lot more um, technology augmented underwriting taking place. Um, things like the technical security scans to help evaluate risk are becoming much more commonplace. Um, and they are relevant and increasingly common um, in the underwriting process in order to um, properly assess, you know, that those customers that you can't talk to and speak through the resiliency culture. Sure, sure. And I'm sure it is safe to assume that even after an organization gets coverage, they will be continually assessed, right? Just to make sure that they they stay eligible for that, co uh, for that coverage. Is that- Yeah, it's a, really, it's a really good question. So the way that these policies are structured is that they are, for an annual term. And so um, this is another area where we've seen a lot of improvement taking place within the cyber industry. Um, you have more, I'll call it human touch underwriting during the renewal cycle. And that's an unfortunate reality because obviously your cyber risk, you know, is, is, is 365 days a year. Um, but, but, you know, there are human limitations, right? And so as part of the renewal cycle, um, for the mid and large sized accounts, an underwriter will sit there and, and actually tactically make their way through an underwriting questionnaire or application. Um, very separately, many of the large global insurers invest in some of the security scanning that I mentioned. And their goal there is to be proactive with their policyholders to help identify vulnerabilities, to help walk through any issues that they're discovering with any um, other policyholders that might have the potential for broader, you know, um, application on their client base and proactively reaching out to those customers to talk through the issues separately, certainly in the small business space and for the underwriters, I shouldn't say the underwriters, for the insurers who are supporting that business, then increased and more regular reliance on the technology scans definitely takes place. Um, and they will provide feedback throughout the policy year. And we're endeavoring to do that more and more frequently in order to shore up the security of these businesses who buy the protection. And I think that's a great way for an organization to get a reality check on how they're doing from a cyber defense standpoint. So uh, that is something that is um, definitely a strength of, of getting coverage uh, from a provider and getting that external validation, external feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that is the goal, right? The goal is to make the insurance more meaningful, to drive adoption, to help people not just buy the insurance, but buy adequate insurance and then ultimately improve the user experience. You know, one more thing I wanted to share with you. 
I, I heard this uh, from a practitioner that uh, if we buy a lot of cyber insurance, that often gives the impression that we are not good at cyber. And it, it poorly reflects on the CISO and the CISO function. Uh, have you heard anything like this? Is that, a, is that a common sentiment or was this an outlier? Um, it feels like a common sentiment 10 uh -huh. years ago and hopefully more of an outlier now. Uh -huh. um, I think when the cyber products were first becoming more commonplace, there was a struggle for investment where, you know, somebody like a CISO might see it as a slight on their own capabilities if a cyber insurance product was purchased. There was also a lot of um, noise around, well, if you just took that money that you were using to buy insurance and gave it to me instead, um, I'd be able to improve, you know, our own controls uh, more appropriately. Um, I think that sentiment has changed. Um, in the last five to 10 years, there's been so much more connectivity um, across the risk management. And again, when we talk about a culture resiliency and, and collaboration across stakeholders, um, we are now seeing more CISOs at the table, part of these underwriting meetings, sharing their insights, actually like engaging with the insurers to say, what could we be doing better, differently? You talked about validation earlier with the mm -hmm. scans. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we're finding is that in the underwriting community, when you provide the feedback to a business and say, here's where you look good and here's where there's areas of improvement, the CISO actually perks up and says, see, I've been telling you this all along. Uh, this is actually external validation now um, from from um, from insurers who assess my own peers as well. Um, and it really validates a lot of what they've been messaging internally. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about self-insurance mechanisms. To set up the question, I want to read out a couple of sentences from an article. In a perfect world, you may think that $2 billion in protection makes sense. Today, that sort of purchase is impossible but you can develop a plan for getting there. It may involve buying what you can now and possibly topping it up with self-insurance mechanisms. Can you take it from here and shed some light on the different types of self-insurance mechanisms? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, these there's a lot of, you know, um, some of these questions are very they're rational and they're reasonable. And we have to acknowledge first where we are as an industry. Um, you know, the cyber market didn't exist. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> People would argue it existed, okay, because there were certainly internet carvebacks and technology carvebacks and some small, um, narrow um, cyber coverages that existed years prior. But really, this industry is about 20 years old. And currently, um, if every cyber writer took out their max line available, their max capacity available, you know, maybe you could get to about a billion in coverage. In reality, the largest organizations out there, no matter how they've quantified their cyber risk, aren't able to get coverage um, excess of 
you know, whatever it is, 700, 750 million. So in your example around 2 billion of coverage, um, there's, they're absolutely right um, that that level of, of capacity is not yet available in the market. We're working toward it. Um, I mentioned earlier some of the pricing correction that's happened. That's because of losses that have come in. When losses come in, these insurers do reassess how much capacity they want to put up on any one risk, right? So on any one business, how much coverage are you willing to offer? In a profitability challenge time, that level of capacity is going to reduce. And when things are performing really, really well, that level of capacity will increase. And currently right now, we're in more of a reduced time period because of the loss environment and the risk environment. Um, so, you know, there's no way to get to, to 2 billion in cover for, um, you know, any one entity at this time as, as, as a broader industry, we're definitely working towards that. Part of that is around differentiating the coverages more. So the product itself being offered differently. Some of that is around the, um, the, the technologies that can be deployed in order to better um, understand, you know, cyber risk, hygiene and maturity. Um, but we just don't have those, those challenges um, overcome yet. There's still a lot of structural constraints that are restricting that level of capacity. Um, as for organizations who are looking for more cover, um, certainly um, taking on some risk themselves, evidences it showcases um, confidence in where you are as an organization. So um, that's, you know, retaining more risk, it's self-insured retentions. Um, we see captives becoming a more common discussion. So that's the idea of setting up vehicles where you can absorb some of that risk either down low, meaning when the loss first occurs, or buy some insurance, then potentially set up a captive to take it uh, midway and then purchasing more insurance on top of that. Um, but there's a number of different ways to do it. It's just at this point, given the infancy of the market, we're not able to scale the way you would find with more mature areas of the business. True. Uh, so, you know, as I'm hearing from you, a couple of inferences that I draw that the cybersecurity market is still premature. It is, uh, it is moving towards maturity and stability. Um, I also heard that small businesses are not prone to getting cyber insurance. In fact, there is data that supports that, but all organizations should be encouraged because it should be part of their overall cyber risk mitigation portfolio. But it's definitely not a substitute for strong, robust governance measures. So you don't buy insurance, so you don't have to do anything about it, about cyber uh, risk management. It's not a cop-out. Um, having said that, what are some best practices that you notice um, with organizations? And I ask this uh, from a reflective standpoint. Say you have um, you have worked with a company that um, sought insurance, and then they were able to establish that expectation from a control standpoint, which got them the insurance coverage, and that actually propelled them, just the fact that they want to maintain the coverage, that propelled them to become more um, cyber hygiene conscious and 
they stayed more prepared than ever before. So in other words, having cyber insurance gets the organizational attention. And that is a good thing that, uh, that promotes you know, efforts towards cyber resiliency. Is there any merit to this inference of mine? Um, I think that, you know, when we look at the key risk controls that um, matter most in attaining cyber insurance at this point, you're looking at multi-factor authentication, so MFA, mm -hmm. yep. um, for remote access. Um, you're looking at endpoint detection and response. You're looking at secured, encrypted, tested backups. Um, we're looking at privileged access management. And we're looking at email filtering and web security. Those are the technical controls that are in place and matter. And you mentioned the point around, you know, making the decision of, of, of whether to buy cyber insurance or kind of in lieu of your own controls. I would say right now where the market is, you know, given um, it's been capacity constrained and given the fact it's um, what we would call the hard market conditions, meaning that um, insurers are increasing prices, it's actually increasingly difficult to get um, cyber insurance protection without those key controls in place. Um, the softer touch issues are around the cyber incident planning and response and testing. So, um, you know, if you have a cyber product, you can do like tabletops with incident response. Um, you have access to some of those key service providers, but even without them, even without a product, you know, you can put those plans in place. Um, you can look at, you know, the employee, you know, awareness training that I mentioned earlier, um, the logging and monitoring of the network protections. You can look at end of life systems being replaced or um, protected. Um, so the number of sort of like behavioral um, control tactics that can be implemented as well. Um, those are softer touch. So you kind of even can't get to that point or hear that feedback from a cyber insurer until you have those more technical controls in place I mentioned earlier. I appreciate you making that distinction between technical and then behavior. I had one last question and that is, relates to behavioral controls or the softer touch as you were talking about. And that is, um, does the insurance company take into consideration of how actively engaged is top management? Is that a factor in the evaluation of an organization's cyber risk and subsequently the decision of whether to give them coverage or give and how much stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, to be completely honest, sometimes you don't have a lot of visibility in that underwriting process. So you might hear about it, but you don't necessarily know for certain. Um, here's what we do know, though. Um, you look at New York State and the, the financial services sort of regulatory, um, you know, uh, developments that were made several years ago. And what you can see is that there's definitely an expectation now around somebody like a CISO having... Um, a direct, you know, line of communication, if not a direct reporting relationship to C-suite. You can look at D's and O's who are increasingly under pressure to elevate their their cybersecurity, um, and an expectation by consumers now that information, um, actually corporate and confidential information too, is adequately protected. Um, so I think that the needle is moving into this being almost like an ESG related issue. Um, I think that's 
validated by our discussions with, you know, rating agencies and other, you know, regulatory bodies that cybersecurity um, is is very top of mind. It's instrumental to um, organizations' long-term health. We see the impact on something like shareholder perception and stock price when these big events occur, particularly if there's um, elements of, of negligence um, within them. And so, um, you know, this, and, and it's not decreasing, right? It's only increasing. And I would say that has global relevance. That's not a U.S. issue. It's It, it, it was, I would say, um, more of a U.S. issue previously, um, but it's definitely uh, becoming more and more pre prevalent outside of the U.S. as well. So, um, so absolutely, if, if in the underwriting community, if, if you see top um, you know, executive management, um, C-suites paying attention to these issues. There's a level of confidence instilled that the security team is going to get the attention, the investment, um, and the financial needs met um, in order to secure the organization. Fantastic. Well, on that note, uh, we can end unless you have any final thoughts, anything else that we should have covered or talked about. Um, no, I mean the last thing I'll say is, you know, I know um, insurance as a whole can get a can get a bad rap, and I would I really like to think of the cyber market as performing differently from that. Uh, there's huge amounts of investment and attention being paid to helping organizations understand the risk, helping them stay in front of it proactively, um, notifying them if you know vulnerabilities are identified. And um, I look to to the future and realize the needs aren't being met now, but there is um, so much work being done and so much left to do in order to make this, um, you know, a sustainable and relevant market. So um, hopefully the audience today found it helpful, but know that I'm available if any other follow-up or questions do occur. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Appreciate it. A special thanks to Erica Davis for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis, with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.